0: Lord, we just come to you in the name of Jesus, and Lord, we worship you. Lord, we're here because of you. Help us to empty ourselves right now. Lord, we invite your presence to come here among us, to convict us, to show us where we are not like you and your son, Jesus. Lord, we lift up Brother Roger and his wife as they travel today. Just give them safety. We lift up Lauren Krupp as they travel back from Florida. We pray for safety. And, um, Lord, we also pray for the Randy O'Brien family, whatever's going on there. Lord, you know the situation. You know the hearts. So we ask you to work. We ask you to use the situation to draw. And, Lord, I also just want to lift up my brother, Bob. Thank you for his zeal to, to uh, preach your word, speak the things you want. I pray you'd clear his mind. I pray that you would um, give him uh, just uh, an ear to hear your voice. Lord, help his tongue to be able to say the things you want to say. Yes. And help us, Lord, to change and to accept these things. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I like the idea
1: of gathering an hour early. That gives me a chance to preach until noon, right? I and mean, we're going to tradition. So speaking of tradition, a lot of tradition started out of the chapter we're going to be reading. Chapter 5 out of Deuteronomy, if you could turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We are going to go through a lot of verses today. Um, So to catch you guys up for the visitors and for those who weren't here last Sunday, uh, I kind of got snagged on on Deuteronomy chapter 5, going through the Ten Commandments. I was challenged that I didn't know them very well. Uh, I was Uh, Pondered. I wanted to ponder each one. I wanted to think about them. I wanted to study them out. And in the process of doing that, I kind of wrote down some word studies out of it. Wrote down some thoughts. Wrote down some uh, quotes from some commentaries that I respect. And uh, I want to share those with you today. We we did a a whole sermon on an introduction, and we got to verse three. (laughs) So uh, we're going to try to push through to all the way to the end, which I think is verse what thirty something. So. yeah, so we're going to we're going to try to do that. I'm going to start with verse here three The the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. These people had no excuse. These people had they saw the power of God. They felt the ground vibrate. They heard the words out of the thundering voice. They, they saw Moses go up with nothing and come down with, with the two clay tablets, two stone tablets. They have no excuse. You know, the Jews, they, they had something a little bit over us. The Jewish folks had one thing. They were either born into it or they went through great pain to become part of it as a, as a proselyte. There was bloodletting involved in, in uh, some of the men. There would have been uh, uh, just lots of training. If there's you're, if you're somebody coming from out another culture into the Jewish culture, there was a clear line of you're in or you're out. You're either born in it or you were not born in it. And if you weren't born into it, like I said, there's there are steps they went through. Uh, but these folks, these folks had no excuse because they saw all of this miraculous things. And I, and I got to think, you know, they, they could truly have saying, I saw the light. I saw the light. They could actually say that from personal experience. They saw the thunder and lightning. They saw the fire come down and burn the top of the mountain. So it remained black to this day, according to archaeologists I've seen. So it, they have seen all these things. And yet, they entered into deep, dark sin. They entered into unthankfulness. They entered into all sorts of things. They saw the mighty hand of God separate the waters. And they walked on dry land. They, they saw God miraculously move. Far more than we have in our lifetime. And yet, they still walked away. All that much more reason that we need to seek to have that relationship with the Holy Spirit, with God, that indwells us it is clear by the, the history that we have in Deuteronomy that God falling upon you and having an experience and seeing the mighty works of God and, the, and the, all these miracles of God, that's not enough. For us to stay close to God for all our life and not enter into gross morality immorality and sin, is, the key is being indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And the whole thing about being indwelled with the Holy Spirit is seeking God daily. And reading that's just a side note I, I out of this verse I just I just can't like when I stand with Moses and I go guys you saw all this and I'm not talking to other people I'm talking to the people who saw this today you guys seen all these things so we need to make sure that our covenant with God is not one that's based on past experiences but daily asking God fill me afresh I, wa- I want to know more about you Lord. Verse 4, the Lord talked with you face to face on the mountain for the midst of the fire. Well, he talked to Moses, but in that context, he's, Moses is talking to the people. God spoke to them face to face. He's reminding them of their testimony. And I would just suggest to us all that is, that's an important part of our walk with God is to remind yourselves and remind each other of your testimonies. You know, if you see a brother stumbling, if you see a sister stumbling, and, and if you can go to him and say, you know, you told me last year your, your story, how you became a Christian, how God revealed Himself to you. Can I remind you what you told me? That's an important thing to do. That's what Moses is doing here. He's saying, you t- God talked to you face to face out of the fire. He's reminding them of the reality of what they walk through. And that's a good practice for us to do as Christians in our covenant that we have with God. Remind each other. God was real for you. Do you remember last year and you prayed for this and it happened? Remind you. You know, I just I just blew it at work. I blew it badly at work. I lost the key to a truck, to a truck. Like the guy can't go anywhere because I lost the key. Not only that, but I didn't make a copy like I should have a, a year ago and had it hanging on the wall. So there was just some, so I had to do all sorts of these steps and and pray and pray. And well, God didn't answer my prayer about finding it. You know, stepping out through. There it is. No, I I had to call Papé, and I had to get a code number and I had to call a locksmith down in Eugene and he uh, created a key and we went down there. And do you think I prayed all the way from Eugene to the truck? Oh, please, 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 please. Yes. (laughs) And I'm going to remember that God answered that prayer. That key miraculously, in my mind, worked. (laughs) I'm so happy that driver didn't even know about it. So... (laughs) I will admit it to my boss, but I, I don't need to tell that the driver. I lost his key. Um, but I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember that as a touchstone of faith. I prayed God didn't answer the finding it, but he did answer this, this code working as a key. That, to me, that's, that's awesome. So remind each other. Um, and I do think, too, that I, I, I'll put another plug in. I've said this at brothers' meetings, uh, but I think anybody going to our webpage could go follow a link that has everybody's here's testimony. Wouldn't it be neat? I found the Lord because I got tired of the naturalistic argument. I argued and argued. I used to love to sit down with Christians. Because they didn't know what they were talking about. And I could debate them and I could win almost every single argument. I just got tired of the emptiness of it. I got tired of it. And I had a guy that could, actually had answers. One after another after another. Everything I asked. See, and, and, and finally he just sat there and he looked at me. And we were at the... Uh, skate world, Eugene, and we're sitting on one of those carpeted benches. And, and uh, he looked at me and he, and he said, what's holding you back? I've answered everything you've had to ask. And I was like, I don't know what's holding me back, but something's holding me back. And then it was just that pride, and that resistance. But you know what? God overrode that pride. He overrode that resistance. And he spoke truth into my life by this other man. And, and God's walked me through all sorts of failures and coming away and going back and, and, and doing things. But, but there's there's a testimony in my life that I can point at. I can point at that bench. It's now, by the way, Skate World's closed. It's now a church. Um, but I could, if that orange, burnt orange carpet, uh, shag carpet bench is still there, I could point at that bench and say this is where I accepted the Lord. This was the first step where I said, okay, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, and that's important to me. And I, I think... I think that's by the blood of the saints and by the word of the testimony, right? That's, that's important that we that we remind each other that. We remind ourselves that. Verse 5, I said between the Lord and you at the time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up to the mountain. You know, I want to say this, unless we forget that how God, how awesome God is in our touchy-feely Christian world and, and God is love and and, and God reached down to man so loved the world that he gave his own begotten son. And in the relationship we have now, we may have a tendency to forget. So let me just throw this at you. This is Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and beyond. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down from the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds to the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves. You may not go up the mountain nor touch its base. Not even touch the base, the rocks of a mountain. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Our God is an awesome God. He's powerful. Not a hand shall touch him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether a man or a beast. He shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long and shall come near the... uh, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified them and, washed, and they had washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there was thundering and lightning and thick cloud upon the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that the people all were in the camp trembled. Our God is an awesome God. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to gaze on the Lord and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain to consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, away, go down and come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come to the Lord, lest he break out against him. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. Our God is an amazingly powerful, fire-burning mountain God. <laughs> he, he's not one that's just, oh, God is love and, and, he, and he he loves the sinner and uh, you know. There's verses in the Bible that says that he hates the sinner. He's an all-powerful God. He's a God that could kill Ananias and Sapphira. You know, he's an all-powerful God. We, we, lest we forget that. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now the house of bondage. A little word study here. The house of bondage. House. It's an interesting word. Baeth in Hebrew. Probably slaughtering the pronunciation, but nevertheless, uh, it's uh, abbreviated from, of uh, another word, meaning a house. In the great greatest variety of applications, it means uh, a family, a court, a household. It means inside, it means a place, uh, a palace, a prison, a tablet, a temple, a web. Interesting word. It means within. Some of that helps, but look at its usage there. In Genesis chapter six verse 13, starting uh, in uh, sorry Genesis 6:14, but I want to start in 13 for context. And God said to Noah, "The end of all flesh has come before me." For the earth is filled with violence uh, through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in that ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. What word do you think was used for that same word that says house in the verse we just talked about? You were brought out of the house of bondage. Out of those verses I was just reading, it was, you cover the inside with pitch and the outside with pitch. The inside, the, 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 very, the very walls, the, the entire walls were covered with this pitch. That's the house that he's talking about. You were taken out of the house of bondage. It wasn't that, you know, on Mondays you have to report and, and you have to you know, be whipped and, and it's a terrible thing and, and, and you have to work way into the night until 10 o'clock or so and then you get to go home and for the rest of the week you can be with your family. And uh, Bondage to sin, which what Egypt represents is bondage. You may feel like it's fine. But that's just, that's just a matter of getting used to what you're in. It's not the freedom that you find in Christ. It's not the freedom. And I stress that enough to you folks. If you're tied up in sin, secret sin, outward sin, if you have a friend that just doesn't care about God and they're bound up in sin, understand that they are in a the house. They are inside. They are inside this house of bondage that God wants to deliver them from. The word is also used to refer to groups that are related under one person or a lineage. They are all the household of Adam or of Noah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this would be the Greek version of that word, uh, For as in Adam, all die. That phrase there comes from that idea that we're in the household of Adam. But he went on to the other part. Now that we are dead to ourselves, born uh, Uh, born of Adam, we become alive in Jesus, born of God. He finishes that statement about being in the household of Adam by saying, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We have been transferred, taken out of the household, the inside, the complete covering, everywhere you go, bondage, sin. We've been taken out of that and we've been given to God into a new family. It's an interesting word. Deuteronomy 5, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Guys, understand, when you're reading the Ten Commandments, understand this. The very finger of God etched this out of tablets. He created the first set of tablets. And for some reason, he had Moses create the second tablets. Second tablets. But he wrote, God himself, his finger etched the words that we're about to read. Don't lose sight of that. Because it's in this paper, it's in this book, the book that's been sitting on our shelves. Don't lose sight of The very finger of God wrote this for us. And what do you say? uh, We're starting at the very top of that stone tablet. The the finger of God carved each letter of these words, I think, how I see the Ten Commandments, these are a wedding vow. These are what. This is how you can love me. This is how you can submit to me. We talked about that during the introduction. I believe the Ten Commandments, this whole ceremony, that Moses going up and hearing the words of God and coming down and talking to the people, the whole thing was a beautiful wedding ceremony. God marrying his people. And so this is this is what he says. He brings out this paper and he and he reads to his bride. He's going to say a lot of things, and his bride needs to listen to him. He says this about, uh, you shall have no gods before me. No gods before me. Isn't it wonderful that God is meeting his people? Have you thought about that? You shall have no gods before me. Doesn't God know that there's no such thing as other gods? There really isn't, right? I mean, there is God. We don't believe, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that there's thousands and thousands of gods that rule over individual little planets. We know that's not true. There is one God. Almighty, awesome, powerful God. One God. There isn't a God over travel. We had a chance in the park yesterday talking to a young man who believed in a pantheon of gods, including Christ. Uh, But there's a God of travel and there was a God of of lust and there was a God of money and I don't know what else. I I just like was phasing him out because I couldn't couldn't listen to all of it. But there there aren't multiple gods. Yet the all-knowing, all-truthful God says you'll have no other gods before me. What does this mean? If he knows that there's no other God, then what it means is he's coming down to our level. Because even though there is no such thing as other gods, in our heart, we bow to other gods all the time. Out of comfort or out of, out of covetousness or out of, uh, out of what? But we bow down. And God comes down to our level and he says this, don't let any of that happen before me little word study, before me. I thought this, this uh, phrase was a bit interesting because I saw it differently translated uh, in a couple of different versions. So let me just kind of throw these out. American Standard Version says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Good deal. Bishop's Bible, thou shalt, which is really spelled funny. That's a really funny Bible to read sometimes. But thou shalt have none other gods in my presence. Think about the difference there. Uh, Do not worship any God except for me. This is a common English version. Uh, My old favorite translation, the ERV, you must not worship any other gods except me. Again, God meeting us at our level. English Standard Version, you shall have no other gods before me. God's Word, never have any other gods. International Standard Version, you are to have no other gods besides me. Think about all the different ways of translating this. Don't, you can't add Jesus to your life. Please understand that. You can't have other, guides, other gods beside me. You can't add Jesus to your life. It is, he is God. And that he, he doesn't compete with anything else. He asks us to get rid of everything. Um, King James Version we've read before. Uh, here's a literal translation. You should have no other gods before me. Uh, New King James, you have no other gods before me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me out of the revised. Um, a collaborative effort called the Web Bible. It says this, you shall have no other gods before me. It seems like everybody's pretty consistent with this. Webster, of course, is consistent with King James. Young's literal translation, thou shalt have no other gods in my presence. Literal translation, in my presence. I am present in your life. Don't have anything else there too. Not beside me, don't have it in my presence. But two different Greek translations of the Old Testament, I found very interesting. Thou shalt not. This is a, 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 I can't even pronounce that. I know Brother Jeremy can. Something, something about an apricot or something. It's a, a, apricot. But it, well you have two different translations anyway. Um, this translation says, "Thou shalt not shall not be uh, there. Shall not be to you gods before my face." A little less, uh, another Greek translation. It says this, Thou shalt have no other gods before my face. This is from the Brinton translation. shall have no other gods before my face. And I asked uh, Matthew milioni because that struck me as really odd, so I reached out to, the, to my Greek expert that I, I know in my life, and I said, what in the world? Uh, and I've done some other, version, some other uh, translations in the New Testament of that word, and it is before my face. It's, a, it's the front, front part of your face. I said, what? How does this fit? And he says it's it's like the old uh, like the old grandma sitting on the, on the porch and saying, "Don't be messing around in front of me. Don't don't be don't be before me. Don't be doing this stuff in front of me. This God doesn't want anything before the importance of who He is. If I look over here, I should see God. I shouldn't see something else that I'm I'm looking at, so I can keep God over there. Everywhere I look, there should be God, and I can't be placing things in my life that gets in front of His face." So I can't see Him, whether it be my boat, whether it be my car, whether it be being a master welder, whether whether it be you know accounting or whatever you know whatever we do that we enjoy doing cannot be before God or we can't see God. Um, i go I have some definitions, but again I don't want to take you all the way to noon, so I'm going to keep going here. Deuteronomy uh, eight. Or uh, five, verse eight. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is earth beneath, or that is in the water beneath the earth, or yeah, under the in the water under the earth. Uh, and by the way, this is a good test verse. You know, like uh, Romans chapter eight, verse one. You can kind of figure out which translation the Bible is taken out of. If you read Romans eight, verse one, there is the King James is added. Uh, uh, as a sentence, and the other translations don't have it. Um, so you can kind of tell is a translator from the same one that King James does, or the one that's translated. So this, is, this verse right here, this is a good one. If it's a Catholic Bible, that verse is gone. What I just read doesn't exist. Uh, revised Standard is usually the ones that they use, but uh, if you want to make sure it's not a Catholic Bible, and you find one at a garage sale that looks like you want to give to a nephew or something. Uh, Deuteronomy 5.8 you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. What an interesting verse to throw out of the Bible.
0: Hmm.
1: Interesting. I don't know about a Greek Orthodox, but I know the Catholics uh, just don't see that one as being in the original text, apparently. This is a good test verse. We talked about that. Uh, but the question the intentionalist has to have, right? We would call ourselves intentionalists. The Bible says this; we need to follow it. But a good, bur- a, a good thought to go through is: is this mean that we can't have faces on our dolls that our children play with? Ran across a brother that felt that way. It says, points at this verse and says, you know, none of my, none of my children have faces on the dolls that they carry around because that would be an image of something. That, and of course, in this verse, you can't have an image. I, I would. I would personally say since uh, God commanded Moses to make an image uh, of the cherubim over the top of the ark, God commanded Moses to create an image of a serpent that everybody can look up to and be healed. Uh, since there are images that God commanded people to, to make, I would say it's probably not talking about that. More in context, it's talking about don't make an image that you're going to worship. In fact, the bronze serpent that Moses created at God's command, was later destroyed by King Hezekiah because people were worshipping the image. So, I don't think anybody worships a doll. I I would hope that they wouldn't. But I'll leave that up to your communication with God. If you feel like God says, nope, my children shouldn't have faces on their dolls, okay. Um, That's fine. I'm not going to judge you. Uh, I found a... um, a sermon from an anonymous preacher about the carved images. Not only the worship of idols, but their manufacturing is forbidden. This includes pictures, images, and statues used in worship. It does not mean, however, uh, or, to, or mean to include all pictures or statues, since the tabernacle contained carved cherubim, and also God told Moses to make the serpent of brass, etc., etc. I've gone over that. Uh, and think about the coin, too, that Jesus was given the test of. It has the face of Caesar on it. According to historians, I found this out. This was interesting to me. I found out that prior to that coin that Jesus was holding, there was no images on the Roman coins. They were, they didn't have it. That was the first coin. Now, it could have been around for 10 years. I don't know. But it was the first coin that actually had an image. It had mm-hmm. an image of Caesar. And as we all know, Caesar wanted to be worshipped as a god. So there was all sorts of things going on there in that testing. It wasn't just who do we pay taxes to? It was, do we even, as, as good Christian or as good Jews, do we hold this, this image that we've been forbidden to have? So there was, there was you go back and read the story of Jesus, there's a, there's a little nuances there that you may not think about. Okay, moving on to verse 9. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the Father upon the children to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me. A ton of things here to unpack. But uh, I, I really, I hit that word serve. What a fun thing to do, to do word studies. Serve. It says this, in Hebrew the word is most, most used in the context of a religious observation, uh, like in the verse above here, right? This is a religious, you don't want to serve these wooden idols, these brass idols. He um, says, serve no other gods, but serve me. That's that same word. Serve and cleave unto me. Don't serve these other gods. But here are some verses from Deuteronomy where it's been used in a different way. In the same chapter, verse 13, it says, Six days thou shalt labor. Labor. Now think about that context there. You shall not bow down to them nor labor for them. You work for that brand new boat. I, I think yeah, we, my wife and I, our children, are familiar with the story where the fellow just worked and worked and worked until he, he, he abandoned the needs of his wife So he could buy a boat and saved all this money. Well, you guys are probably familiar with the story too, but um, anyway, but he labored for his idol. And God says, Don't do that. Don't don't when you find yourself just dreaming about that future thing you're gonna buy, that future tractor you guys don't buy a tractor, right? Of that future tractor, that, that John Deere or the New Holland or whatever, or whatever. If you start thinking about that that new rifle, that, where where's the King Child? There's Okay, that new rifle you're going to get, that um, the thing like that. It, then then think about what you're laboring for. Are you laboring for another tool or implement to be able to bless God with, or are you laboring for something that you can set up in your life and say, I own this this thing. Is it Daisy? Right. Is that the most expensive rifle <laughs> um, here's some other uses that words uh, Deuteronomy, or fifteen, chapter 15 verse 19 out of thy flock thou shalt sanctify unto the Lord thy God thou shalt do no work with the firstling or the, of thy bullocks the, so the, the cows you can't do anything uh, 21 verse 3 thou shalt take, take a heifer which thou hast not wrought with has not worked with which has not drawn a yoke these are all pictures of, and I could go on and on, about working. Um, thou shalt not, uh, this is Deuteronomy 28, thou shalt plant vineyards and dress them. Are we, is there anything in our life that we're paying so meticulous attention to as dressing a vine? Okay, this vine needs to go up to this wire and I need to tie it off here. And this, this vine here is coming down and it's just going to suck the energy. I'm going to all that thought Going towards. Is there anything in our life that we're planning that much thought and God says don't have an idol in your life that you're serving, that you're meticulously taking care of. You're going out and polishing. You're washing your car every Saturday. I'm not saying cars are idols. Cars are never idols, right guys? Um, I, but you're meticulously taking care of something. Your thoughts are towards that thing. That meticulous taking care of. Um, but this is the biggest eye-opening, eye-opening to me, eye-opener <laughs> to me was the use of the word, the first use of the word, and uh, uh, I believe this was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The first time that particular word is used in the Greek translation is Genesis 2.15. Get this, guys. This is powerful to me. This, this, this set me back for a while thinking about it. Then the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. All the little tweaks and the cuttings and the tying up and the support. God gave the command to Adam to tend that's the word don't serve these idols doesn't mean well don't bring in a plate of fruit and set it down or or, uh, people in asian culture that that bring food and incense and whatnot to their idols and yeah that's certainly part of it but don't tend to it god told adam to tend to the garden to take care of the garden to to notice what's going on and to, to, to work with it and to do it all the meticulous little things that Adam was supposed to do in the garden that God gave Adam the command to do. Again, meticulous little things. So if you if you have something in your life that you're you're constantly just working on, you're constantly thinking about, it, you're walking away and you're thinking about it, that could be an idol that you're serving, you're tending. You're tending. All right. Um, this was another really... I, I was so... Take them back. There's no way we're going to get to page 36. Oh, well, <laughs> I got to share this a few good things then with you because uh, I'm not going to do three, three sermons on this. The following. This is uh, from Matthew Henry. I want to I want to take the time to think about this. this Matthew Henry found, said something that I thought was so impressive. He says this. The, uh, he's talking. This is a commentary on you cannot serve God and mammon, two gods. You can't serve these two things. This is what he says here. Uh, The application of it is the business at hand. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is a syrnic word that signifies gain. So that whatever in this world is or is is accounted by us to be gain. Philippians uh, 3, 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted as lost to Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. What you're gaining. The things that you're looking at is, is mammon. And he, he goes on. I, I wish I had time to kind of read this. Um, i got a whole page and a half or so of his commentary. But if you want to be blessed to think about uh, a possible idol in your life, think about that. Think about what, what you're gaining. What what in my life is am I seeking after gain? This is in direct opposition to what Jesus himself said when he defined his own belief system. He said, don't You can't love God and mammon. You can't love God and gain. That gain is going to become an idol. It's going to be a second God that you can't have before Him. Moving on. Oh, well. Okay, moving on. Deuteronomy chapter 10. But showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and they keep my commandments. Uh, If you go back to verse 9 just a little bit, it talks about this whole idea that That if you sin, I'm going to put that sin upon your children and your children's children and your children's children, right? Verse 9 talks about that a little bit. That always made me scratch my head a little bit. Because it says in Ezekiel, that's not the case. God says, am I going to hold the sin of the father on the child? No, I won't do that. So if it says that in Ezekiel, what is this talking about? I think what it says is us fathers and mamas, if you're allowing sin in your life, you are given a proclivity to your child of of gossip, of covetousness, of of um, loving work more than loving the family, of loving the, the evening newspaper more than loving reading the Word of God, of loving being entertained more than just being able to sit quietly before the Lord. You know, if if you have if you have sin that you're saying, eh, it's not that big, then you're given a proclivity to your children. To say, eh, it's not that big. And it's going to be visited, the punishment of whatever that is, is going to be visited to them. So be watching your habits. Be watching the things that you do. I think that's what he's saying in in verse 9. He's talking about, I'm going to visit the sins upon all these things. If that was standing alone, then I would say, wow, God, explain that to me. But it doesn't stand alone. We have this clear teaching in Ezekiel that that's not the case. So we have to go back to 9 and look at it and I, I think in the context there it's more accurately thought of as you're giving permission for your children to sin and therefore be punished like you are from one generation after generation after generation and there's an example that I could share uh, about a man who's, who, um, who did that and they have documented the, the sin and his children his children his children his children's lives meanwhile um, I can't remember the name but there's a pastor that was born at the same time as this famous criminal and his children have become well not obviously Anabaptist, but his children have become presidents, vice presidents, supreme Court justices. I mean this, the list was on of how important um, these these uh, members uh, hands sinners in the hands of anger, God who wrote that sorry yeah that's that 's the fellow that they went down through his lineage and they found all these these people who are upright as far as society goes um, Okay, uh, so God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He obviously loves those who follow. It's an mm-hmm. obedience thing that God will send His blessings through. And that's, that's verse 10. talks a little bit about that. Um, and I have a bunch of verses here about uh, Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before who, eyes Jesus Christ, was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Uh, Paul talks about in Romans 6.15, What then shall we say? uh, What shall, what then shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, certainly not. Do not, do you not know that whom the present, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether it be sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that through you were slaves to sin, yet you, yet you obeyed from the heart. That form of doctrine in which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. It's, he loves to bless those who obey. Again, it's a love language. If we can get, if we can get that into our hearts, that He's not just commanding us to, just to see us walk around like little ten soldiers and do what He wants us to do. But He wants to pour out His blessings that He knows only comes when our hearts are prepared centered around obedience when we're obeying. He pours out those blessings when we're obeying. He, he enters forgiveness where no forgiveness should probably be because we obey and the people that need to forgive us obey. It, 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 oh, it's just beautiful. And it goes into not just Paul's writings, but Hebrews 5.9 says, Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So verse 10 out of the Ten Commandments or uh, out of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 that He pours out these blessings to the generation after generation who obey Him. That comes from that. You're given the proclivity of your children to obey when you're obeying and the blessings come. Uh, Let's go to verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold Him guiltless who takes His name in vain. Uh, Easy to just say uh, to say this commandment that we don't use the Lord's good name as a cuss word. I remember there was a, a preacher fellow once when I was learning about God. And I'll always remember this line. He said he stopped off on the side of the road to help a guy. It was raining. It was dark. And he was just helping him change his tire. He thought, oh, this is a good Christ. Thing to do I'll go out there. And he did that. And he was helping this guy change his tire. And the guy slipped and he hit his knuckle. And he yelled out God's name. And he had to stand back. And he looked at the guy and he says, well, I, I, can you just explain something to me? when their figure of history steps out and, and, and dies and does all this miraculous stuff and loves you to the point where he'll suffer, why use his name? What Can you just explain to me why you didn't yell out Hitler? I mean, somebody at least deserves it. And they had a good conversation on the side of the road there, but, um, but, uh, but it's easy to say, I don't, I, don't, I don't cuss. I don't use God's name. I, I, I say gee willikers or I say whatever, but I won't use the Lord's name. Right? Um, this was a powerful... I don't know if it was Matthew Henry or the other one I really like. Um, this, this was a powerful thing here. He says this. Um, to go deeper on that. Every time you or I... Uh, okay, so if... Here's this idea that when you're, when you're at a wedding and there's a couple standing up there and they, they exchange vows and in the name of God they're married. It says in Malachi that you're a witness. It also says Malachi, more importantly, that God's a witness to that. But it says that you're a witness. Now, what's a witness's responsibility? You don't just walk away after you've given them their new sets of pots and pans or their new toaster or whatever as a wedding gift. But, but you're there for them. If they're having problems in their marriage, speak to them. Pray for them. Reach out to them, give them a letter of encouragement. Do something like that. You know how hard it is when they're brand new married. There's all sorts of things to work out when two households are, are blending. Uh, just two, it's just two people are blending. There is all sorts of issues there. If you stand as a witness of their, their marriage, in Jesus' name, if their marriage is in Jesus' name, then you have a responsibility as a witness. Don't just walk away from that. You hear about somebody going through a divorce and you were there at their wedding. There is a responsibility as a witness. Um, What about our prayers done in Jesus' name, public and in private? Are we using the the name of the Lord in vain? We're praying about something we really don't care about. are Are we saying Jesus' name over things? Are we just throwing that name out because that's what's expected of the culture? Or are we really praying? Are we praying honestly? Are we taking the name of the Lord in vain, uselessly? Observe the Sabbath. I'm not even going to take a stab at this. I have like three pages of ideas. Um, and I'm not going to. Because I've I got to tell you this. The one thing I'll say about the Sabbath. The fourth commandment is this. It scares me. It scares me a lot. I, I had it theologically down pat. I understood it. In the New Testament, the Sabbath was Jesus. When it says keep the Sabbath, I could say amen because I keep Christ in my heart right here. I, I believe that's part of it but as I'm going through it well over 40 verses in the Old Testament are dedicated to how to observe the Sabbath you go through the Ten Commandments and I don't care where you grab them it is the most, most prolific amount of words to describe what he wants why he wants it the, the Sabbath is important to God now is it important because it represents Christ maybe but you know what God said in one one picture, He tells Moses to speak to the word the rock and water will come out. Another one, He says strike the rock, but He he never says strike the rock twice. He never says take credit for it. So Moses got punished for something, Uh, and it was just a little little deal to him. It was a rock. What's the big deal? You know, it's a rock. Well, Paul tells us in the New Testament that rock was Christ. God took it very seriously when he took a a stick to it and broke it and and, and took credit for something that God wants to do. It's a little bit like uh, giving when Jesus said when you say Satan has the power that God has the power, it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There's there's something there. There's something there that doesn't quite make sense to our, our fleshly brains. There is something significant about the Sabbath. There is something I can't grab. There's something I can't say definitively. It's not for us, um, and I and I and I think the history of the church would say that it's not necessarily a day that it's a Saturday or a Sunday even because they met on a Sunday and the first church that we read about in Acts was almost exclusively Jews that would have kept the Sabbath more than anybody else. If if the, Saturday, the Sabbath is a Saturday, um, it's a day of rest and what type of rest and I I focus more on that than anything else, because I really feel like God was trying to say something, and I don't know what he was going to say. I don't. So I can't. So I'm just going on. (laughs) Um, Which means that many of these things um, I can go on. But I do want to point this out. One of those things I used to argue with Christians about was the inconsistencies of the Bible and and how they don't... it, it doesn't agree... So anytime I find an answer to something that doesn't quite agree, I really enjoy it. I, I, I like those answers. Uh, and, and so uh, Hawker, who I, I don't know if I'd recommend Hawker. I love the way he writes the poor man's commentary. I love the way he writes. Uh, you're going to hear a little bit of it in a second. But, uh, but he does believe in one to always save. So you just got to be super careful when you read his stuff. But he said this, and I thought this was so poignant and so true. I want to do it. Um, I would only beg to point out to the reader that there is somewhat of a variation in this new edition of the commandments to what was first given back in the book of Exodus. It is a variation only of words, however, not of meaning. Perhaps the Holy Ghost intended us to teach the Lord's people that when at any time from the strength of memory they endeavor to confront, uh, comfort themselves or to be useful to others in rehearsing any of the words of God that they should not be alarm, they should not alarm themselves with unnecessary fears. It is their quotation they adhere to that uh, uh, of the sense of the passage. Though they may not express the very words of the writer, they have a great number of instances which is kind in the scriptures. Thus, for example, Paul's address before Agrippa, and in relation to the history itself to which that uh, address refers, it's uh, it's okay, so I won't go any more on what he says. But but I'll say that what his his point was, is you know I want to quote scripture to somebody when I'm talking to him, witnessing about Christ or something. I want to, but I don't know if I'll have every single word right. And Hawker's saying, you know if you if you go back in Exodus, the reason for the Sabbath is different than the reason in Deuteronomy. If you go to Acts chapter was it nine about Paul's conversion his conversion story is different in nine than it is when he's before King Agrippa. And what Hawker is saying is don't get bogged down in the words but lift up what the words mean and focus on that and don't get scared to share the word of God because the Holy Spirit will give you words for the words that need to be said. So I, I, I thought I thought what he said was very apropos. Um, Honor your father and mother verse 16. It says uh, I just go into Hebrew is a very picturesque language, for example, eternity, someone want to tell me what the, the the picture is in Hebrew for eternity it's a beautiful picture. It's the same word for horizon. Think about it. It goes on and on and on, doesn't it it's a beautiful picture to say eternity is to say the horizon, exact same word in Hebrew. The word here, honor your father and mother is the same word as adding weight in a negative contact and negative context. The balances and the scales and God's saying being honest in the scales don't add weight. So the same word. It's adding weight, adding weight. Children. You add weight to your parents, and I I could go into this recently politically, not too recently for you guys, you were just toddlers, but recently for me. uh, There was a politician who didn't have much experience, he didn't have much know how, and so he got a running mate that uh, had a lot of experience and a lot of know how, and everybody who was against him used this word gravitas over and over and over. I'm getting nauseum. Everything you turned around, that word was being used. Gravitas means adding weight. And, and they were saying that he now becomes a viable candidate because he's added the weight of this other fellow. They were trying to slam him. They were saying that this guy—he's clearly he's not qualified, but this other guy is. And so he just did this so he could—he could have weight. Well, you know what? God says if you add weight to your parents' words, if you—if your parents say something and you do, you don't just like, yeah, you know they don't know what they're talking about, and uh, um, I'm not sure. But if you add weight, make it weightier what they have to say, then, then God says what? He says uh, that God has commanded you that, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the language that God will give you. So he's, he's saying, respect your parents. Not just bow before them and do all the other wonderful things, but he says respect your parents. Give, give weight to what they have to say. If they say, you know, I just don't think that's a good idea, son. I don't know. Uh, I just don't think you should be doing that. Don't enter into a debate with him, but find out why, and then and then give weight to what he has to say. He's an expert. Do it that way. Um, Thou shalt not murder. Oh my! I have such a great quote out of this. Um, I, can't, I can't avoid not saying it, so I will. Uh, I believe this is Matthew Henry. No, Wesley. Wesley said this about it. Thou shalt not kill. Kill. Have you uh, have you not tempted anyone to which? which might shorten his life. In other words, have you not made anybody else angry? Have you tempted none to, in uh, temperance? Have you suffered none to be impertinent under your roof or in your company? Have you have you done all you could in every place to prevent impertinence of all kinds? You know, uh, it says there in Romans, what does it say, chapter 12, it says, so, so far as it be upon you, but be at peace with others. Are you, are you stirring people up? Boys? Boys? <laughs> Particularly my two oldest boys. Um, keep this in mind. If you're if you're making each other upset, even in a playful way, then then you know that could be a murder. You're shortening that. You may be shortening somebody's life because they're getting spun up. They're getting angry. Um, and it, and it just it's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt, right? Um, and anyway, he goes on with this thing, and he and then he talks about uh, really you're not committing murder. Really, well, what about have you ever eaten anything or consumed something that you know is bad for your body? Well, isn't that like self hatred? Isn't that like self murder? You know that this, that my mom used to, as she was smoking cigarettes, she would say, you know that this, they say that this is a, one more nail in my coffin. Oh, why are you smoking? <laughs> and she did die of lung cancer. So, have you ever done anything to your own body? Has anyone tempted you with strong drink? knowing that this is going to destroy my liver, this is going to destroy my reputation, this is going to destroy my thought process. I mean, why in the world do I ever do that? So don't be involved in self-murder. Because God says it's one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Adultery. Boy, that's a... uh, God... Jesus redefined adultery, guys. Young men, young women. You guys... Jesus redefined it. Adultery is usually traditionally defined it as if you're married and you, you commit intimacy with somebody else other than your wife or your husband, there's adultery. But Jesus said, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you committed adultery. He doesn't say, you married man. If you do this, this is adultery. He redefined it. Know that you, you can fall into that. Uh, steal. Stealing is a covetousness. Stealing is a, a, a desire for something that isn't yours that's basically telling God, I don't have everything that I need. That's, that's an unthankful spirit. The Israels were, Israelites were judged strongly about that and in fact there's, test, there's verses in the New Testament about the uh, covetors, the covetousness will, are, are on the list of those people are going to hell. Witness against your neighbor. Uh, we could talk about that, but don't lie, don't go to court to lie, don't lie. There's all sorts of verses saying just don't lie. Uh, not covet. Again, covenants is listed there with drunkards, revilers, extortioners, sodomites, homosexuals, uh, idolaters, fornicators, unrighteous, thieves. So coveting is in the New Testament just as much as in the Old is a really terrible bad thing. Uh, all right. Yeah, there, there's a there's ton more. I'm on page 25. So I <laughs> still have like 10 more pages. So there's, there's a ton of things in the Ten Commandments. If you just go verse by verse, I really hope this last week you had a chance to do that, either out of Exodus or Deuteronomy. If you had a chance to just think about it meditate. God, what do you have to say for me? I, I understand and respect the idea that the Ten Commandments was in the Old Testament. It was, it was one of the defining things of God's agreement. That's what testimony means, right? Or testament. Agreement, his contract with his people, but God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is something in the Ten Commandments that he wants us to hold on to. It, most of them, all of them, I would say all of them now. I would easily say all of them but one is repeated in the New Testament. I'm struggling with that one that's not repeated in the New Testament. I'm thinking maybe it is. or something, yeah. You know. But they're repeated in the New Testament and it's more based out of this is how you love me. This is how you obey me. This is, this is the stuff that's important to me. God the Father speaking to us. Again, His finger carved it into a rock. Now He writes it under our heart. And wouldn't it be neat to know what really blesses Him and what really makes Him angry if we're in that type of love relationship. So take time to consider the Ten Commandments. Think about them as being a boiled down deal. And I, and I was challenged this last week. I was, uh, or the week, Yeah, last week. What about all those other commands in the Old Testament? Like cutting your beard and, and, and things like that. And I, I would just say the Ten Commandments were cut into a stone by God's own hand. Those other things were God saying, Okay, Moses, this is how people are going to work this stuff out. Be different from the culture. That's the biggest thing. I think God wanted his people to do is be different from that culture. Don't be sucked in with their fake gods. Don't don't do all this. Don't don't be meditating on these things and don't cut your beard like those do or or cut yourselves or mark your your skin uh, for the remembrance of the dead. And, And do all these things that these people groups do that that just mark them as distinct and different for their God, their fake God, may I say. But this is how you're supposed to do it. you're still obeying me that's what marks you is your obedience for me so you know I told I told Caleb I was going to say something about baseball caps up here about how we want to be different from the culture but I think I did that enough and just saying it right now is, is probably saying it again enough so um, so I, I I just say look at the Ten Commandments as God saying this is how I want you to be different from those around you by by truly loving me and this is how you love me and how you do that so Father, I didn't say what I think you wanted me to say up here. There's some things, Lord, I know that are so heavy in my heart. And, uh, Lord, I know that you're, you're maybe doing that because there's stuff in my own life that needs to come under the obedience of what you've said to do. And so, Lord, I just submit that to you. I commend that to you. I give it over to you right now. In the name of Jesus, I cast my burdens upon you because you care. Lord, there may be people. There may be a person. There may be one youth in here that's feeling this way. Lord, that there's some things that they're not fully submitting to you, that they are bowing down, they are serving an idol. They're meticulously looking after something that doesn't, that doesn't um, serve you, something that they have placed before your face, that they can't see you. Lord, right now, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we pray, we pray, Lord, that we lay down all of our idols. May the, may the dagons in our life fall down and their hands and heads break off before the living God may we not allow anything in our life to be more important Lord may we be truly thankful and truly satisfied with what you've given us that we don't covet Lord that we don't that we are unthankful Lord help us to always be truthful because you say Lord that that those outside the city in Revelation were wailing and and gnashing of teeth and that list is a liar those who love and make it the lie. Lord, we don't want to be outside the city walls when eternity comes. We don't want to be outside. We want to be inside, Lord. So help us repent from any lies, any, any uh, white lies or dark lies or anything else, Lord, because you don't make a distinction. Lord, help us to know what it means to, to love you and to give you everything, to rest in you, to, uh, to trust in you, And to give you the honor, Lord. And to do everything else you've called us to do. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Thank you for your time.